0: So as we have looked at Scripture, as we've looked at God's truth, it's been a flood, truly, a flood of encouragement to me to hear these personal statements from you, whether it's been after a worship service or with a text or a phone call or an email or even a counseling session for you to say, you know, this is all new to me, but what a joy. And I have to tell you, for my wife and myself, it's been invigorating. It's truly been a vibrant experience to look more closely at God's Word. You know, I wasn't, obviously, as familiar with 2 Corinthians 8 as I am now. Anytime you study a passage in depth, you get more familiar with it. And to see the glory of what God did, you remember last week, in these godly men, Titus and the two unnamed brothers, and their willingness to be vehicles by which Paul would ensure that the Corinthians were encouraged, but also that their gift would be ready. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul reveals four characteristics of the faithful giver that spring out of four attributes of our glorious God so that you and I will glorify God in our giving. That's really the idea. The idea is not that you satisfy me. I don't know what you give. It can't be about that. has to be about you being who you are as a result of understanding who God is. It's really what it comes down to. So you're going to see this connectivity between the four characteristics of the faithful giver and these four attributes of a faithful God, really a glorious God. In the health-wealth gospel, there's this hope that God will come through like a slot machine or a roulette table. It's really the idea. You know, Paula White, who I've mentioned before, abuses. She really just butchers this passage out of John eleven forty four. The passage says, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. So you see Jesus' glory on display. You see his sovereign work on display in the moment when he makes a dead man alive, something only Jesus can do or in some cases, empowered a handful of apostles to do the same thing. But Jesus did that after Lazarus had been dead for three days. He stinketh, as the King James put it. And so he was dead, literally dead. Jesus made him alive. He's glorified in that. Paula White abuses this passage by saying this. She says, I don't know what is dead. I don't know what the enemy sent a death to. I don't know what decision that caused death to come upon whatever the situation you're facing but I do know that God has sent me to bring to you resurrection life. That alone is an utter abuse of this text. This is not about some dead thing in your life, some dream that you had that you know, is no longer being fulfilled. As she goes on to say, To tell you that I believe that as we put our faith together before Easter Sunday on March 27th, there's going to be resurrection life in your life. The grave clothes are coming off, she continued. Whatever residue of death, whatever residue is holding you back, it's coming off. She then reveals to the audience that she didn't normally request a specific amount in monetary donations, but said God was very specific about the amount required for the so-called resurrection seed, the resurrection seed, an unbiblical concept. She says there's someone that God is speaking to. This is what the Health gospel folks do. They, they make it personal for you by saying there's someone in the crowd. Jesus is telling me there's somebody in the crowd. Have you ever heard this? He's got back problems. Yeah, that's, that's really crafty. Who do you know who doesn't have back problems? Everybody in the crowd's going, oh, my word, Jesus is talking to me right now. It's a trick of the trade. She says, um, God's speaking to this person. To click on that donation button by minimizing the screen. And when you do to sow $1,144, it's not often I ask very specifically, but God has instructed me, and I want you to hear. This isn't for everyone, but this is for someone. When you sow that $1,144 based on John eleven forty-four, a misuse of the added Masoretic numbers, which are not Scripture... to believe for resurrection life, she says. And for those who couldn't afford her specific request for the resurrection seed, White encouraged them to give smaller donations. Uh, she says, you say, Paula, I just don't have that. Then sow $144. I don't have that. Sow $44. But stand on John chapter 11.44. This is not only a bad hermeneutic, in other words, a, a misguided approach to Scripture. This is an utter, complete intentional misuse of God's Word to bring more money into T.D. Jake's, the potter's house. That's where she was when she delivered this nonsense. She says, and when you do, there are prayer cloths that we have anointed, that we have prayed over, that are going to be a point of contact. In Acts 19, the Bible says, Paul prayed over these prayer cloths and they brought forth special miracles, signs and wonders. There have been times that I have taken prayer cloths that have been anointed as a point of contact. I put them in my loved one's sneakers. I can think of better things to put in your loved one's sneakers, by the way. (laughs) She goes on, I put them under their bed. I put them on parts of my body that I believe God for healing, said White. And the verification, the pseudo-verification of these things, comes out of the reality that at times some of these things that they are saying, they are predicting, actually come to pass. It doesn't mean that it was caused to come to pass by what they did. It just means that coincidentally it happened. And most of the time it doesn't happen. But the rare times that it does, they see, there you go. It's proof. It's proof. That's how God works. Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10, which we wrapped up with last week, gives us the right perspective on this. And I think this is the perspective of your hearts Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is the promise from God. Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his seed. As you know, We're looking at an agricultural illustration in 2 Corinthians 9. It's an illustration. God calls upon this cultural reality with which everyone who was hearing this for the first time would have been tremendously familiar. The society that leaned heavily on the farmer next door or on self, who was actually the farmer. And the idea here is that the more you sow, the more you reap. This is simply an obvious axiomatic reality. The more you throw the seed, the more the grain rises. The less seed you sow, the smaller the crop. Again, an axiomatic reality. It's self-evident. In our text, I want you to see four characteristics of the faithful giver. Number one, a ministry-minded, passionate preparedness. Paul says now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. Just stop there for a moment. Superfluous doesn't mean bad. It doesn't mean disingenuous or dishonest or deceptive. It simply means that it's extra. His point is, as he has already explained, I know you to be faithful believers. As you know, this is the fourth letter that Paul has written. It's the fourth letter on record it's only the second record that is inspired by god but this relationship that paul has with the corinthians is such that uh, the severe letter which was truly harsh i think in a spirit-filled way was then followed by a clearer and more effective letter which we refer to as first corinthians and in first corinthians paul doesn't pull any punches he addresses their lack of willingness to address sexual immorality in the body. And the whole point of that passage in 1 Corinthians 5 is not the sinfulness of the adulterer. It was the sinfulness of those who refused to love him enough to confront his sin to ensure his eternal salvation. They didn't love him enough to keep him from going to hell. That was the issue. There are other issues in 1 Corinthians, the misuse of women in ministry, the misuse of the sign gifts, on and on. There are seven major issues. But now Paul saying, it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. You've been faithful. You've grown. You've changed. You show that obedience that Alex and Myra and Trinity, all three spoke of this morning. This is not about me making a decision. This is about me being changed by Christ. I'm here to tell you I'm not only being baptized for obedience in the waters of baptism. I'm compelled to be obedient, not just to give lip service to this Jesus who's going to give me a better life, but I literally want to throw off sin and put on Christ on a daily basis because of the compelling reality within the human heart That when God resides there, He has, in fact, granted righteousness and a passion. For righteousness. And Paul knows this to be true of the Corinthians. Verse 2, for I know your readiness. This is where I get the word preparedness in your outline. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. This is hugely encouraging to the Macedonians because Achaia, as you probably know, is that larger region in, in which Corinth sits. So Corinth is one group of There's a group of Christians in Corinth, but Achaia is this much larger region. And what Paul is saying here is that you um, have had an impact on them such that the whole region is prepared to give. Sometime within the last year, there's been this collective devotion to bring in the offering and have it ready for when Titus and the other men arrive. He says, and your zeal, that's where I get the word passionate in your outline. Your zeal has stirred up most of them. How about that? Your zeal, Corinth, (laughs) has had an impact on this much larger region. It's like when Paul says to the Thessalonians, your faith is known throughout Macedonia and Achaia, through all the regions. This is what happens in legitimate Christianity. People start taking note. Their necks start bending in that direction. Wow, this is truly a changed life. Not this decision-based idea that we're growing the numbers. It doesn't matter what people's lives look like. It doesn't matter whether or not they obey Christ. Well, whether or not he knows the Lord, that's between him and the Lord, which is an absolutely satanic statement. It is a satanic statement. John declares in 1 John 3 that it is obvious who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And the distinction is that the children of God love the brethren and they love righteousness. Those who are not in Christ, they might pretend, but they don't love righteousness and they don't love the church. This is why the idea that, well, you can be a Christian without going to church is also a drastically false statement. If you're in Christ, you're in the body of Christ. Paul knew this to be true of the Corinthians. And so Paul declares this reality of their ministry-minded, passionate preparedness for this gift. He says, Your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers... Sending these unnamed brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction, not as an extortion, not something that you would feel is being ripped out of your hands because I, Paul, and other Macedonians show up and we're going, okay, well, what are you going to give? Aren't you going to give? And they're like... Okay, yeah, I'll see what I got. You know, I'll check things out and get back to you. No. No. They've been thinking about it. They've been praying. They've been preparing for it. This is why in the last number of times that we've had missionaries come to speak, we've given you some advanced warning so that it doesn't dent your regular giving and you feel torn. Well, what am I going to do? I want to give to the missionaries. I want to have an impact on the other side of the world, but, you know, if I do that, where am I going to take that money from? So we're trying to give you a little more advance on those things. And your response has been that you have not taken out of your regular giving, at least on the whole. Your offering last Sunday was $13,000. That's a lot of money. And just three months ago, our average Sunday offering was less than $6,000. It's not about the amount, but the amount means something, and it shows the changing of hearts. The last time you gave $13,000 was a month ago, and on that same day, you gave an additional $6,000 to the Central African Preaching Academy in Malawi. The Sunday prior, you gave $6,000 to Tony and Santi McCracken, who are missionaries in Malawi. You know, my, my role, okay, I teach, right? But my role is like your role, and, and then I sit back and I am in awe of how the Lord is producing what he said he would produce. And as you know from last week, it is absolutely critical that there be integrity. That's why we titled the message from that section out of 2 Corinthians 8, Trustworthiness in Managing God's Money trustworthiness, that men would be above reproach. It's my joy to tell you that our finance team is made up of godly people who are above reproach. And as Steve, when he stood before you and gave you the report, he said, I want you to know we are people who are not perfect, but we are people of integrity." And we hold one another to that level of accountability. And so when you see something unravel in a local church, when you see some major scandal happen, that didn't happen yesterday. That happened as a direct result of a lack of willingness to hold people accountable to a godly life that they live by grace. That's how that happened. When you find out about the pastor who's been committing adultery for 20 years and Nobody knew. I guarantee you somebody knew. And there were signs all over the place in that guy's life. But because of the us for no more, shut the door kind of mentality in the leadership, they were unwilling to confront him. Because if they confront him, then they get exposed. You know what? Let's just expose each other. Let's just start that from the beginning and say, let's be humble. Let's be willing, all of us, every one of us, to be above reproach and know that that requires accountability. That was the mindset that Paul was leaning on and encouraging in 2 Corinthians 8. And so here he says that this offering ought to be ready so that it's not taken as an exaction, you know, so that Paul doesn't have to get there and say, hey, come on, you know, cough it up. How can he do that? Because he knows that they're led by godly men, men with integrity. Verse 12, for the ministry, go down to verse 12 with me. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. So you see this ministry mindset, this service mindset, with a passionate willingness to be prepared, leads Paul to say, The ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, which it is, right? It's doing that, but it's also overflowing into many thanksgivings. And that's the result of legitimate, faithful, effective, spirit-filled, diligent ministry. A mindset that says, I'm going to serve because my life only matters if I serve, right? I mean, that's what matters is service, that one's life is devoted to giving it up to serving the body, equipping the body, ministering to the body, being a faithful expression of the person of Christ, such that Paul could say about the Corinthians that it's overflowing in many thanksgivings, right? It's not just that the people receiving the benefit of the offering were thankful for the offering. They were thankful for the godly service mindset. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. So lives are changed. It's not just about the gift. It's about the mindset. It's about the ministry mindset behind the gift. They give the gift. They have the right heart attitude. They're serving faithfully. And when they serve faithfully, God is glorified in that the people that receive the gift approve the service. They approve the act of grace. They approve the lifestyle. And they can say, God is great. (laughs) Because you and I would never have come up with this idea that giving to others would result in blessing. We would never have conjured that up. Real, effective, spirit-filled ministry results in God's glory and gratitude. Point number two, I want you to see a generous, cheerful, gratitude-producing heart in the faithful giver. A generous, cheerful, gratitude-producing heart. In verse 6, Paul says the point is this. You know, when you hear somebody say that, it's time to listen. So here's my point. I often do that in conversation because I talk a lot. <laughs> so just in case you wondered what I was saying, here's what I mean by all this. So sometimes we say it this way. I say all that to say this. That's what Paul's doing here. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. This agricultural illustration that when you sow much, you reap much. When you sow little, count on it, you're not going to reap much. And he's talking about money. That's the application. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So back to the the point, a generous, cheerful, gratitude-producing heart. It's not under compulsion. It's not, you know, a pastor standing before you and saying, you better give 10% because the Bible requires 10%. He has not studied. He has not been faithful to Scripture when he manipulates you with that. And someone needs to confront him, whoever he is. He has potentially created an unbearable burden for you. He has certainly created an unbearable burden for some. And he's wrong to do it. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. You decide in light of the reality that the more you sow, the more you reap. See, I can say that with full confidence, knowing that it's not manipulative, because that's what Paul says the more you sow, the more you reap. The more you give, the more you get, so that you have more to what? Give. And as we've looked at from the words of the Lord himself, you are storing up treasure in heaven when you do so. But listen, friends, mark this down. Mark this down. When you give under compulsion, you're not going to experience that treasure in heaven. When you give out of guilt because some teacher told you you've got to slice out exactly 10% of your paycheck and you do it begrudgingly, right? God doesn't love that. And it is not treasure stored up in heaven. It doesn't bless God. It doesn't bless the body. Don't give it. Clear? Don't do it. Trust the Lord to produce the change in your heart, not only knowing that the more you sow, the more you reap, but knowing that this is the result of your love for God, which is the result of his love for you. But when you give under compulsion, that doesn't glorify God, doesn't please God, it's not honoring to him. Keep it. Keep it until the right timing. The faithful giver is generous and cheerful. He's cheerful. Deuteronomy 15.10 says, You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. If our church is not deeply devoted to ministering to the poor, then the last six weeks have failed drastically. You know, it's hard to know when and when not to help folks. But the Lord has moved on our hearts to help. We must be willing to give. Your primary vehicle of giving to the Lord is to trust that the leadership of the church is going to use it wisely. There are going to be times where you know someone who needs money, and your best response is, here it is. This is why in our discipleship studies, we're working on helping you develop a budget and we're working on helping you get out of debt and working on helping you get to the place where when someone needs a substantial amount of money, you can say, yeah, I, I can do that. Here it is. And as you know from Scripture, that time may come where you will need that gift as well. In verse 11 in our text, Paul goes on to say, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You will be enriched in every way way why how does that work how is it that a person is enriched to do that because god in verse 10 supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food and he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness that's how that's how you can be generous that's how you will want to be generous Because you see God's generous work in your heart, really, as a result of your willingness to be generous. He says it will not only supply the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. The generosity, verse 13, the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. So this generous, cheerful mindset is the expression of the faithful giver, and it results in gratitude, not only for those who receive the gift, but in seeing that God is glorified in the process. Point number three, the faithful giver has a grace-saturated, good works focus, a grace-saturated good works focused. Now that might sound polar opposite. Is it works-based or is it grace-based? It's grace-based and it's works-focused. You don't earn your salvation with works. You don't earn God's favor. God grants favor. God grants grace without merit. And the result is that you work hard to glorify him. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What does that sound like? Sounds like Ephesians 2, doesn't it? Ephesians 2 8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The more you grow, the more you humble yourself before the truths of the doctrines of grace, the more you will live by grace and the more you will want to work rather than the other way around. Rather than thinking you deserve some great credit for the works that you do, you say, wait a minute, I want to do these works, whether or not I get any gratitude from anyone, because I know it glorifies God, and I want to do it because of his grace toward me. The more you peel back those ridiculous expressions of what you did to earn God's favor, the more you rest in God's grace and the more you enjoy his favor. Number four, The faithful giver has a God-glorifying grace gospel purpose. He has a God-glorifying grace gospel purpose. 13b says, Because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. This devotion to the gospel of Christ came subsequent to one's confession, one's obedience to the gospel. Back to our baptisms. Why? Why do we encourage those being baptized to give a testimony? Because, first of all, it's their first opportunity to proclaim the gospel before the body. But it also develops that ability to be one who actually proclaims the gospel. It's a pastoral process. We love sitting down with folks and looking at their own expression and kind of helping them through that. Develops your evangelistic, spirit-filled skill to tell truth rather than using a catchphrase that never changed anybody's life. Like, hey, don't you want to add Jesus to your life? Hey, don't you want to accept Jesus? Hey, don't you want to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life? No, no, no. But actually proclaiming the gospel, which is that by which men and women are saved. The gospel, not a catchphrase that means nothing. The gospel, like you heard from three faithful believers this morning. Far, far different from the watered-down pseudo-evangelism of the evangelical church. There is an effort for God to be glorified in all of this, and it actually results in God's glory. It's the gospel of grace that is the purpose in the heart of the giver. He knows his church is faithful. He knows the leadership is above reproach. He knows that the body is largely above reproach because there is a commitment to God's glory and the purity of the church so he can faithfully give he can give knowing that the more he sows the more he reaps the more he can sow that he would reap it eternally this produces Thanksgiving as we've already gone over 2nd Corinthians 4 15 Paul says for it is all for your sake So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This God-glorifying reality of what takes place in legitimate, spirit-filled ministry is a result of God's grace. So we've looked at four characteristics of the faithful believer. We want to quickly look at four characteristics of God, four attributes of God that are the root, the platform, the foundation upon which those characteristics in the faithful giver rests. Number one, our glorious God is loving. He's loving. John tells us that God is love. God loves a cheerful giver. God has a particular love for the person who gives cheerfully. There's a sense in which God loves all mankind. God has a particular love for the elect. He has a more particular love for the one who gives with joy. Don't you want to be in that scope? Don't you want to be in that category? That God has a special Love, God loves the one who gives with joy. Give with joy. This is my best response to those who say, what do I do in the details of giving? Give with joy. Start with what you can give by giving with joy. Number two, we see that God is able. Isn't that great? He's omnipotent. Oh, even beyond that, he's sovereign. I think one of the greatest tragedies in the life of the person who rejects God's sovereignty is that he's rejecting God's ability. He, He doesn't really believe God is able. Oh, he'll give lip service to that, but he doesn't enjoy it. He doesn't rest in it. Paul says God is able. He is able. To make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You get the idea that he's talking about all things? Having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in all works, every good work. So it's rooted in God's ability. So when you give, you can confidently say, I'm giving um, not because uh, this all rests on me, but because God who has placed this on my heart is able to flood me by grace with a return that I would continue to be generous. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How does God get glory? Primarily. God primarily gets glory in your life when you acknowledge and live by the principle that he is able. Trinity quoted... Paul in Philippians 4 says that he can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. How many times have you heard that passage misused for winning a football game or whatever? He's talking specifically, as you know, we were in this text a few weeks ago. He's talking specifically about the ability to live in riches and to live in poverty with what? Contentment. That's what he's talking about living with contentment regardless of the size of my bank account. He says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory. Where? In the church. That's what he says. Glory in the church. Well, number three. Number three, I want you to see that God is generous our glorious God is generous. How can you be generous if you serve a non generous God, a stingy God who only wants to use you? No, He is generous. Verse 9 in our text says, As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. You see that connectivity? You see the relationship be- between God's righteousness and His heart for the poor? It's critical. That as you and I engage in a ministry to the poor, that we would do so not only for the sake of leaning on God's righteousness, but that we would declare God's righteousness. Far better to minister to someone tangibly in the context of having a relationship where you can explain God's righteousness and his requirement for righteousness from those who can't achieve it, but his free gift of righteousness through the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Far better to do that and say, yeah, here's 20 bucks, have a nice night. Far better. Because God's righteousness is indelibly marked on his free distribution of resources to the poor. It is because he is righteous forever that he has a heart for the poor. Verse 10 says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The harvest of your righteousness. Righteousness. So think about it. The basis is God's righteousness with which He ministers to the poor, but also with which He calls upon you to minister to the poor, such that the harvest of your righteousness, as God is producing in you an increasing hunger for righteousness, He's storing up, you are storing up more treasure in heaven. Righteous harvest. Verse 11 You will be enriched in every way to be generous. In every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. See, this all points back to God's generosity, leading to our generosity. Verse 12: For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Why? Because He's generous. (laughs) How can we not glorify God in His generosity? How can we not worship him, praise him, and thank him because he is generous? I don't think one person in this room can say, I've never experienced the benefits of God's generosity. I had the privilege at my wife's great aunt's funeral a couple Saturdays ago to communicate the great joy of experiencing the generosity of God. Specifically, the generosity of Jesus Christ. We are told in verse 15 in our text this morning, we are to give thanks to God for his inexpressible gift. What is that inexpressible gift? You see, you can't outgive God. You can't outgive God because God gave all. God gave his Son, his eternal Son, and gave him up such that he became sin, Scripture says. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, that that truth that's void of so many gospel presentations is the linchpin that Christ became sin. Not for those who water down their sin. He became sin for those who acknowledge the depth of their sin and realize they actually need a Savior to save them from their total depravity, not an ability to assist them in watering it down. That's generosity. And it results not only in the supplying of the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Well, number four, I want you to see that God is gracious. And this is the root of all sound theology. This brings us point blank back to the root of all sound theology, all truth that is life-changing. It is a work of God. Again, verse 8, and God is able to make all what? Grace abound to you. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. How do you know the person who has received God's grace? His life reflects it in an obedient lifestyle that serves the body of Christ. With what attitude? Cheerfulness. He's a cheerful giver. And he is because he recognizes that God is a God of grace. Again, verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they, not, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. You see, that's, what are you looking for in determining whether or not to rejoice over what's going on in somebody's life, right? You know, you see someone who apparently is a new believer. They apparently have come to know Christ. They've repented of their sin. They believed in the gospel and you're waiting, waiting, wondering, is this person, is this the real thing? It's grace. It's grace. It's God's grace. It's a dependence upon grace. It's a passion for understanding and communicating God's grace. It's a passion for living in light of God's grace in the same context as that of the Corinthians about whom Paul said, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, the Macedonians long for you and pray for you. That's how you and I should want to be known. And how will you be known? (laughs) I was talking to Rick and Doris Carringer yesterday, and they were talking about how they were going through some of his mom's things and some, some, some truly funny things in her journal. And we were rejoicing over the dear soul that she was and is in heaven today and having a good time laughing about some of the humorous content of her Diary. Be careful what you put in your diary because your kids are going to read it to your friends one day. (laughs) And um, it's a great reminder that you and I should be thinking about the fact that one day folks will look back on us. Now, that's not the primary motive, but it's a reality. You know, you can measure your love for Christ by the degree to which you are willing to be a person who lives by grace. Let's finish with this in Luke twelve. Luke twelve forty one. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Are you slicing off? a sliver at the end of the month, saying, oh, look, we've got a little extra to give. Or is it the first fruits? Is it a deliberate act? Is it such that it comes as a result of realizing that God will replenish all? Is it an awareness of the fact that he who sows much harvests much? trust this morning the result would be that you and I would grow in our ministry-minded, passionate preparedness. You know, Being prepared, that's why you have a budget. That we'd grow in our generous, cheerful, gratitude-producing hearts. In our grace-saturated, good works focus. Our God-glorifying grace gospel purpose. Because God is loving. He is able. He is generous. And he is gracious. Father, we rejoice this morning in the tremendous joy of hearing the testimonies of new believers who have rested in your grace. We pray that the result would be that we would find even greater joy in the extended ministries which you are providing to our church because our people are giving with cheerful, sacrificial, and generous hearts.